Turn to Matthew chapter 25 with me. We're going to read verses 14 through 30 together. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what, then what he does have will be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous encouragement and sober warning that this passage provides us. I pray that we would listen attentively. You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. You would take in these truths and respond appropriately. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's said that that famous line from the Declaration of Independence was drafted originally by Thomas Jefferson, but then through a discussion between him and Franklin and Adams, supposedly the, eventually the phrase gets, got changed to that. Originally it wrote, we, told, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. It is said that Franklin probably offered the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Now those immortalized words are, can still be heard wherever there are cries for freedom. Even in a day in which much of our history is forgotten, most Americans are familiar with those words. But here's the question I have for you. Is it true? Are all men created equal? 
Is that a sacred and undeniable or self-evident truth? Based upon what can we be described as equal? Are we equal in economic status? Are we equal in physical strength? Are we equal in mental aptitude? Are we equal in educational achievement? Are we equal in political clout? Are we equal in practical know-how? Are we equal in athletic ability? Are we equal in natural gifting? Are we equal in experience? Are we equal in friendliness? Are we equal in talents? Put in the question there. The list could go on and on. Is it really all that self-evident that we're equal? Is it really all that self-evident that we're equal? When I think about all these things in which we're not? Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher, wrote a book entitled Leviathan. It's actually a book that's read by our students here at Orca, and I had a nice little discussion with Seth Woodley about it a little bit. He is definitely more the expert than I. But Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher, wrote a book entitled Leviathan, in which he argued for the need for a government to come in and curb individual interests to make sure that we use our differences to one another's good. But one phrase or paragraph in the book that kind of caught my attention, um, which, by the way, I have not read the whole book. I just read little portions of it. He posited that a man's relative equality with others could be defended by the idea that our differences are really not all that different. For example, Hobbes argued the following, that even the strongest man can be beaten by the weakest given the right conditions and scenario. In other words, the weakest could get some friends and beat up the stronger man, or the weakest could use some device or tool to his benefit to beat up the stronger man. He said, we're not all that different. He counted the differences between men to be minute enough to claim that we really are virtually equals to one another. I personally don't find Hobbes' argument all that compelling, for it seems to argue that because a group of weaker human beings can get together and beat up a stronger one, that they're relatively equal as a result. I mean, it's true. Two plus two plus two plus two plus two equals ten. But on the basis of that, it doesn't mean that two equals ten, does it? Just because I can add two, five twos together doesn't mean that that ultimately means each two is equal to ten. And there are other areas in which that adding scheme doesn't work so well either. For example, take a test of strategy or intelligence, like, you know, one of my favorites, a game of chess. Pit 1,000 amateurs against the grandmaster. Let them play on separate boards simultaneously, or let them play on one board in which they can pool together. And either way, I think you're going to find the 1,000 is going to lose to the one grandmaster. Because pooling ignorance doesn't result in uh, an intelligent decision in the end. In a similar fashion, some men have physical prowess that puts them on another level. I believe LeBron James could take any five of us and beat us one on five in a game of basketball, right? Some skills can be learned, some things you can develop greater proficiency in, but some people, just by their birth, are, have greater abilities in certain things. Some people are stronger, some people are quicker, some people are smarter, and some of that is a result of natural aptitude and ability. You can grow a whole lot, yes, but there are some people who have natural ability that just outranks others. And that doesn't even take into account those who have physical or mental impairments or disabilities. In what way are they equal to others? So are all men created equal? Well, it appears that you have to carefully define what you mean by equal and how it applies. All men have different talents. All men have different abilities. All men are given different opportunities. Yet what is consistent about all men is that they are all made in God's 
image. You see, it is our theology that ultimately links us all together and makes us equals one to another. That's, the, that's what really makes us equal. What's constant is that all men are created in God's image. All of humanity is equal in the sense of being created in His image, uniquely bearing a resemblance to the one who made everything. We're different from plants and animals in this regard, and therefore humanity should be afforded a higher dignity than animals and plants. God gave oversight of the world to man. He placed Adam in dominion over the plants and animals, and to this day we're to exercise his God-given authority to God's glory and to our fellow man's good. Since each human being is created in God's image, each human life is special and should be afforded the appropriate dignity. In this sense, the ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness may be purported. Spiritually, we're all created equal in God's image, whether male or female, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. We are all created equally in God's image, whether we're wise or foolish, old or young. And the idea that government should be established that rightly recognizes this truth that all men are created equal because we're created in God's image is a biblically defensible idea. It's evident from the general tendency of political movements of our day that this self-evident truth is being denied by people all around us. There is a continual battle on this, in this, on this ground. The evil practices, for example, of abortion and euthanasia demonstrates just how brutal we can be when we lose sight of the fact that all men are created in God's image. Just last night, my wife showed me a video that had been posted to Facebook, and I literally, still at this moment, I'm just cringing at it. There was a nurse who was playing with a baby still inside of the um, placenta right after an abortion. And the nurse is just flipping the baby over and, and speaking in another language. So I don't know what she was saying, but flipping the baby over and pointing to things. And they're like, it's like they're having a dissection right there, and they're videotaping it. I said, you know, if this sort of thing, if we had a one-year-old and a mother was suffocating the one-year-old, and we put that up on Facebook or something, I mean, everybody would be outraged. Police would be there. Meanwhile, there's a little baby suffocating, dying. And we take a video and post it on the web. This is what happens when we lose sight of the fact that all men are created equal. Or we do the same thing with the elderly, right? They're no longer useful. And so we just want to get rid of them. It's horrendous. Now, it's also true that since Adam and Eve's fall, not only are we all equal in the sense that we are created in God's image, but we're also equal in the sense that we're all born dead in our sins and trespasses. Everyone in Adam, born in Adam, shares the guilt of the consequences of Adam's sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all on an equal playing field when it comes to spiritual standing before God without Christ. We're all God's special creation and simultaneously without Jesus. We're all underneath God's wrath and in need of a savior. Right? We're all equal on both of those levels. We're all made in God's image and we're all sinners. We have all that in common. No matter how rich you are, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how able you are, no matter how powerful you are, we're all unable to establish a right relationship with our God on our own. On our own, even our best deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. With this in mind, 
the framers were wise to fashion a form of federal government that contains many checks and balances between the branches. David McCullough in his book on John Adams explains, quote, to Adams, nothing had changed about human nature since the time of the ancients. Inequities within society were inevitable. No matter the political order, human beings were capable of great good, but also great evil. Thus it had always been, and thus it would ever be. You see, because all men are fallen and prone to seek their own selfish desires, a government with power spread out is a safeguard against tyranny in any governmental system, or so it is to function that way. But the Bible also explains that not only are we all equal in the sense of being made in God's image, not only are we all equal in the sense of being fallen, but we're also equally savable. None are good enough to save themselves, but none are beyond God's ability to save. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful truth that is. Our hope is in a gracious and magnanimous Savior who came to save even the chief of sinners to make a display of his of the riches of his grace. In Christ, we can be united together where we hear in the scriptures, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. Yet even within this equality, this equal status with God and being granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There is yet a distinction that persists in how God gifts and utilizes each of us. He does not give all of his children the same stuff. He forces us to live in community, to grow in relationship with one another as we recognize the relative giftings that he's bestowed on each one of us. Our one Lord has given diversities of gifts and diversities of callings. As each snowflake is different, as each of our fingerprints are different, so each of us are unique, uniquely formed to operate with the respective giftings that God has given each one of us. He has a unique work for each of us to complete, and all of this has been planned beforehand for us to do. Well, we're one day away from exactly a year ago when I preached a sermon entitled Awaiting the King's Return. And it was on the parable of the Minas in Luke 19. There are many features that are similar between the parable of the Minas and the parable of the talents, which we look at here today. They both speak of masters going off on a journey and leaving affairs of the household to their servants. The same basic theme of, is at work here. Servants are expected to work or trade with the master's resources and then bring a profit when the master comes back. Both contain two servants that bring a return and one who hides the original investment and just brings it back to the master. So those are all very similar points between the parable of the minas and the parable of the talents. Yet there are many features that are different. And chief among those differences is the theme of inequality. You see, in the parable of the minas, everybody got the same amount of stuff to start, but they had differing uh, returns. In this parable of the talents, unequal distribution of goods is given out. Maybe in the parable of the minas, they all were given equal opportunity, whereas here, the lesson seems more connected with personal responsibility to handle whatever has been distributed, because the talents are not given out equally among the servants. We all may have differing amounts of resources and ability that we are to nonetheless utilize for God's glory, whatever he has given us. Now, remember our context. We're listening to Jesus' 
uh, Olivet Discourse. He's up on the Mount of Olives. He's giving his final instruction um, to his disciples. And he finishes it with a, a few parables. Last time we were together in this text, we saw that he had just given the parable of the ten virgins. He saw there how important it is for us to be watchful and faithful and ready. But I think what this parable does for us is it illustrates for us what does watchfulness look like? Of what does this time of waiting consist? Is the time of waiting for Jesus' return something of a passive endeavor where we sit back, relax, and watch the hours pass by? Or is it instead a time that's filled with purpose and activity? Well, obviously, in the text we see before us, we see it's the latter that Jesus wants us to adopt. Just as our faith is not dead, it's alive, James 2, our waiting is not dormant, it's active. Our waiting is not dormant, it is active. I've held several different jobs in my life. I worked as a shipping specialist to give my regards, a most fantastic gift basket business that is no longer around, but you can still find the owner of that previous business and ask her for help if you ever wanted to make one. I worked as a grocery stocker at Super Kmart. I worked as a customer service representative at Computer City, a store that's also gone, a sales engineer assistant for General Electric. I worked as a grader for systematic theology papers at seminary. I worked as a janitor at a plumbing business. I've worked as a teacher here at Orca and obviously I've served as a pastor and headmaster. But one job that I've never held is one in the food industry. Never had a job in the food industry. And I've always had a kind of soft place in my heart for those who serve food and cook food for that matter, but especially serving food. Perhaps no one knows better than a waiter than the job of waiting on tables is not a passive activity. It is one filled with much activity. If you want to keep your job and if you want to get good tips, you're going to be one of the most active people while waiting, right? A waiter knows how to be active while waiting. And I think that's the paradigm that Jesus gives here in the parable of the talents. Famously here describes to us the work of waiting. What is the work of waiting? That's my title this morning. This parable illustrates that we all have work to do. However, the work that we each have varies depending on what we do and Depending on all of that, varied judgment will come our way as well. Those are going to be our three points. We have a varied distribution, so a varied giving at the first. Secondly, a varied stewardship. There's variation in how these people actually interact with the stuff that they were given. And thirdly, a varied judgment, a varied judgment. So we see a varied distribution, a varied stewardship, and a varied judgment. Let's first of all consider the varied distribution. We see this right at the very beginning of our text, Matthew 25, verses 14 and 15. A man is going away on a journey. So he's preparing for his departure. And as he's about to leave, he decides to hand over his property. Look, look at that. Called his slaves, handed over to them his property. Note, whose property is it? It's his. It's his at the beginning. It's his in the middle. And it's his at the end. It's always the master's property. That never changes in this account. It's always his. It never ceases to be his. The fundamental principle that undergirds this parable is that all of the goods contained here and anything that they might make is the owner's, is the master's. That is such a fundamental starting place for us as Christians. We must recognize that everything here is his. Nothing is ours outright. Anything that we have is on loan to us. For God owns everything. 
The master's property here are represented in the form of talents. Talents. R.T. France points out, the English use of talent for a natural or supernatural aptitude or ability. Oftentimes when we talk about somebody who is talented, we describe them as someone having certain ability to do a certain thing. He says here, that, that, that word talent being used that way derives itself from this parable. It represents the common application of it to the need for one to live up to one's full potential. But of course, the Greek word talaton is simply a sum of money. It's actually literally a weight. And our interpretation should not be influenced by the subsequent use of the word in English. In context, Jesus' ministry, the sums of money entrusted to the slaves are more likely to represent not natural endowments given to men in general, but the specific privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven. The opportunities open to each disciple may differ in character and magnitude, but they are all to be faithfully exploited before the master returns. So we need to remember here from the outset, before we jump to like talents and abilities and that kind of thing, is that the word talent was a reference to an amount of money. Yet it is also the case that if we talk about money being given to someone, and that's a gift from God, then certainly all of the things that we have are gifts from God. We're all merely stewards. We're all merely managers of resources that God has provided. But please don't skip over the financial consideration, because that's, that's what's front and center here, talking about the finances that these servants have been given. J.C. Rowell puts it, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of the body of Christ, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all our talents. So again, the initial thing that's being spoken to here is an amount of money, but it certainly has reference to everything that we have, because everything we have was given to us. Now, there are different amounts of talents given, and this is where we get to this varied distribution. Each servant is given in accordance with the master's desire. It's the master's responsibility, it's the master's role to distribute his stuff. And who is there to criticize how the master distributes his stuff? Whose stuff is it? It's his. And so he can choose to give it to whomever he wishes, however he wishes. He allocates in accordance with his desire, in accordance with his wisdom. And we don't, interestingly in the text, we don't see any murmuring or complaining among the servants as to who got how much. You don't see that at all present here. And I think in that moment that we also must remember and not complain or murmur against how God distributes the gifts he gives to us, but ask him to help us to be content with whatever he chooses to bestow upon us, that we've gotten anything from him is sheer grace. We're not owing any of these wonderful privileges. So it's given in accordance with his desire. And we're also told in the text that it's given in accordance with his appraisal of the servant's ability. It's given in accordance with his appraisal of each of the servant's Ability. Look at verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. So the master has somehow summed up the ability of each of his servants, and he's distributed his gifts in accordance with the ability that he knows them to have. Certainly, this master in the parable is distributing resources on the basis of his knowledge of their ability to make use of them. And as we see the parable play out, we see why the servant with one talent only gets one. 
He knew something about that man from the get-go. You see, if a boss knows how to distribute work, certainly the Lord of Lords knows how to distribute his gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities. 1 Peter 4.10, each one has received a special gift from the Lord. And so we're called to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Romans 12.6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So God has distributed gifts uniquely to each one, and we're to ask the Lord for wisdom to use what he's given us. Now, don't miss this either. Each slave is given much. Each slave is given much. A talent, by the way, is much more than a mina. A mina is about one-sixtieth of a talent. That's what was used in Luke's parable. A talent generally was the amount of weight that a soldier could carry on his back. Something between 75 and 100 pounds. 75 to 100 pounds of either here pictured silver or gold. 75 to 100 pounds of silver or gold. Now, in the ancient world, silver and gold didn't have as much of a disparate value as they do today. Today, gold is much more valuable, price-wise, currency exchange, than silver is. Even at present exchange rate, silver sells at around $20 an ounce, 16 ounces to a pound, 100 pounds, that equals $32,000. So if it was a talent of silver by today's prices, it would be around $32,000. Presently, gold sells at around $1,200 an ounce, times 16 ounces a pound, times 100 pounds, that would be $2 million. $2 million. Now, which one? I mean, those two numbers are kind of greatly different from one another, right? $2 million versus 32000 Well, another way to approximate the value of money that's being distributed here, one talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. And a denarius was equal to one day's labor for a typical worker. So 6,000 days of labor is represented in one talent. 6,000 days of labor, which would equal around 20 years of work. Take your life, 20 years of your work, and now you're given that in one lump sum right at once. That's if you got one talent. If you got two, you got 40 years of work, your whole lifetime given to you right now, one moment. And if you got five, you got two and a half times your lifetime. <laughs> so your life lived two and a half times. That amount of money is being given unto you. If we were using, let's say that someone made $50,000 a year just to kind of give us some easy numbers to work with. That would mean that the one talent would equal a million dollars. The two talents would be two and the five talents would be five. So if you make around $50,000 a year, 20 years of your life, 40 years of your life, 100 years of your life, here we have a million, two million, five million dollars. So even the guy who got the one talent, don't miss this. He got a lot. When's the last time you had a million dollars just, you know, given to you? So we see here that these, this is a lot of money. So even though there may be unequal amounts distributed, everyone received a large amount of resources to be in charge of while the master was gone. And again, we don't see any jealousy being spoken of here between the servants, perhaps because it didn't really matter. They both have a lot of resources to manage. So be, be reminded, dear friends, let's not fall into jealousy and envy of one another, but dutifully use whatever God has given us, knowing that whatever he's given us is way more than we deserve anyway, right? We need to remember who we really are, what we're really worthy of, eternal judgment in hell. That's what we're deserving of. And meanwhile, in Christ, we're given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember those things and give thanks and serve the Lord diligently with whatever he's given. Now, after much time transpires, in verse 19, we see that at the end of this time that the master is gone, he comes back, 
and there's a settlement of accounts. Again, reminder, it's still the master's property. It's still his. No matter how much time transpires, it's still his. And the delay in between his departing and his coming is not a meaningless delay, but a time for opportunity meant by the master to put those talents to good use, to put that money to good use. And similarly, it is today. In the time awaiting Jesus' return, this is not to be just a time where we sit back and twiddle our thumbs. It's a time to utilize every opportunity for God's glory and others' good. Well, we see not only a varied distribution, but point number two, we see a varied stewardship. We see a varied stewardship. The first two slaves show a considerable return. There was a different initial amount given to each, but each one used what they were given to net the master double of what they started with. We see the first slave comes to the master and says, Master, you handed five talents to me. Behold, look, another five talents is yours. I've gained this. Master, the other one says, you've, you handed two talents to me. Behold, look, another two talents I've gained. I love the expression here. It, it almost has like the picture of a young child coming up to his dad or mom. I think of my daughter who just the other day had made me this little rubber band bracelet. And she was so excited about showing me this rubber band bracelet that she made. And it was really special to me. But she's like, look, Daddy, look what I made. Now, obviously, these rubber bands were given to her from someone else. But she put these together and then said, look at what I've made, Daddy. Look at it. And it has a similar kind of feel to me. It is a servant. They're excited about the Master's return. They want to show him what they've done while he's been gone. They can't wait to show him. Here, you gave me five. Here's five more. You gave me two. Here's two more. He invites the master, each of these slaves, invites the master to take a look. Look at what has happened. There's excitement. There's joy. There's anticipation. Because they're waiting and longing for the master to return. Because they know that they've been working for him diligently while he's been gone. There's joy and attendance. There's excitement about his return. They just can't wait. The last slave, on the other hand, shows zero return. He returns the talent as it was originally given to him. Instead of that same excitement, he comes with a bunch of words, a bunch of excuses. He explains his knowledge of his master. And the description that this slave gives of his master is very unflattering. Spurgeon comments, The servant judged his Lord to be one who expected more of his servants than he had a right to look for. And he had such a hatred of his unjust conduct that he resolved to tell him to his face what he thought of him. How does that go if you tell your boss that sort of thing to his face? He tells him, you're a hard man. You're a rough man. As you reap where you do not sow, you gather where you don't scatter. Those are two agricultural metaphors. What he's saying is, you're harvesting and reaping from fields that you neither sowed or scattered seed. You're getting production from places where you have done no work. What are you saying? He's saying, you're benefiting from the work of others. You're benefiting from the work of others, Master. That's the kind of guy you are. You're getting produce from places where you have done no work. You can see that there's not the same sort of excitement and joy attending his relationship with the Master. He doesn't act out of love for his Master. He finds his master to be a tough individual who profited from other people's work. He found no joy in service to him. He didn't long for the master's return. He merely stashed the master's property away 
So whenever he did come, he could just give it back to him. It's as if he's reasoning this way. You know, if I profit any off of my master's money, it won't be my profit anyway. It'll be my work, but his profit. <laughs> he gave me the stuff. He's going to come back. If I make anything, he's going to take it anyway. Just like he always does. Taking from other people's work. Benefiting from their work for himself. And if I lose the investment, then I'm going to be in trouble. So what am I going to do? Well, I'll dig a hole. Out of fear of punishment and doing something wrong, I'm going to dig a hole, dump it in the ground, and bury it. By the way, this is a typical way to safeguard valuables at that time especially. However, what was the master's original intention for giving these resources in the first place? Did the master need it hidden? He, he wanted it to bring a return. I mean, if hiding was the issue, the master could have hid it himself. Why would he give it to the servant? Why not just cut out the middleman? Just go and hide it. Or take it off with him to, on his journey. You see, hiding the talent meant little possibility of loss. But it ensured no possibility of gain. It meant little possibility of loss, but it ensured that there would be no gain. The servant says to the master, have back what is yours. See, have back what is yours. In contrast here, he speaks nothing of profit because he has none to show. Instead, all he speaks of are excuses. He acts as if his laziness is his master's fault. And instead of apologizing, he gives the master's talent back and acting as if he should get some credit for having safeguarded it while the guy was gone. See, here it is back, just as you gave it to me. You don't see any humility in the servant. You don't see any contrition. Just self-justification and anger with the master. He's attempting here to cover up his own sloth and wickedness. But it won't work. He fails to recognize that the master was also entitled not only to the original investment, but to the return on the investment. He's entitled to that too. And what does he have to show? Nothing. I wonder how often, though, we, even as Christians, can fall victim to the kind of mentality of sins of omission like this. It's not only our children who may contest, why am I in trouble? I didn't do anything. Oftentimes in those moments, it's like, exactly, that's the problem. You didn't do anything, right? But how often are we found in the same place? Oh, I didn't do anything. And what we mean by that is wrong. But the question is, did you do anything right? And this servant is thinking that he's going to be okay because he didn't lose what was originally given. But the master's question is, what did you do with what I gave you? What investment have you made? Since when has it been okay to just not do anything? Perhaps we fall victim to this more often than almost any other generation with the amount of entertainment at our fingertips. We can find ourselves often not doing anything. I remember calling friends up when I was younger, you know, high school, and like, hey, what are you doing? Nothing. Well, what do you mean nothing? Well, I'm just watching TV. <laughs> nothing is TV often, right? Nothing is TV. Um, but since when has it been good to not do anything? This is not what our master desires. Even from the beginning, even from the original creation, Adam and Eve placed in the garden, they're given a task. They're told to be fruitful and multiply. They're told to fill the earth. They're told to exercise dominion over the world. They're, they're told to tend the garden. Right? They're given work. Even before the fall, there is work. Inactivity is not the goal. God intends for us to work hard in service for him, to his glory and renown. Well, this leads then to a varied judgment. Point number three, a varied judgment. Note the master's response to the first two slaves. 
Now, he has a varied response for the third slave, but his response to the first two slaves is identical. Even though both of the slaves had given him different amounts, they had made the same profit as a percentage. And he responds with the same words to both of them. You see, both slaves were faithful with what they had been given and doubled the investment. Both of them are commended. Literally in Greek, well. It says, well. Now, sometimes we put in here, well done, or it is well. Um, Someone suggested the word bravo, right? (laughs) Well done, excellent, is what he's saying. Both are commended. Both are appraised, good and faithful. Bravo, good and faithful. Good. The character being described here. Faithful. The diligence of the servant is being described. Bravo, good and faithful. Then both are rewarded. Over few you were faithful. Over many I will set you. Over few you were faithful. Over many I will set you. Revelation 22:12. we had read this morning. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Here we encounter a general principle in delegation of responsibility and authority. Those who show themselves faithful with a little can be trusted with more. This should be like, you know, management 101. If you're going to put somebody in charge of something, you start them with something small. You note how they do with the something small. And based on how they do with the small thing, you determine whether or not they should get a bigger thing to manage or to show oversight for. Meanwhile, the one who's unfaithful with the small thing doesn't just instantly become faithful with the larger thing. We all generally operate by this principle, whether we're aware of it or not. A child who's faithful in a small responsibility can be entrusted with more. An employee who does well with what's given him or her may be in line for a promotion, which entails more responsibility. If you cannot do well with the basics, what makes you think you'll be ready for more? You can't lift 100 pounds in a bench press. Why on earth would you put 1,000 pounds on the bar? Right? If you can't lift 100, you're not going to lift 1,000. Because the best indicator of what we will do is what we are currently doing. What we are currently doing is the best indicator of what we will do. But how often do we justify inactivity through this kind of hypothetical situation? Well, if such and such happened, then I would do such and such. Well, what are you doing now? That's the question. I mean, this is like the person who says, if I could cook like so-and-so, then I would make a meal. Or once I have children of my own, then I'll start loving children. Or if I was offered the pulpit, then I would begin to teach. Or if I won the lottery, then I would give. Are you giving now? Are you teaching now? Are you serving now? I'm not saying that all of us have the same role to fill. Again, we're all different. But I am saying don't despise small beginnings. Oftentimes, it's that very means through which God works. We show faithfulness in the small things, and then God fits us and makes us ready for the next step in the journey. Isn't it crazy that, I find this so fascinating, that the Master tells these two slaves, you were faithful in a little. Now I'll make you faithful over much. Faithful over a little. Two million dollars and five million dollars. You were faithful in a little. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You were faithful in a little. In a small thing. He says, now I'm going to give you much. 
In the parable of the minus in Luke 19, a comparatively much less amount of money, when they're done, the master says, you've been faithful with that. You've netted five minus, or the other one, you've netted, netted ten minus. As a result, you're going to be put in charge of five cities. And you're going to be in charge of ten cities. From minas to city government. You're not going to exercise authority and responsibility and manage cities. Not just a city. You're going to be over multiple. You're going to be a mayor of five cities. Of ten cities. We've gone from minas to cities. What are we going from talents to? Talents to what? The point is that whatever is given here and now is mere pennies in comparison to what's to come. Knox Chamberlain says, Jesus will reward his people's faithful service on earth by granting them yet greater responsibility at the kingdom's consummation. Life in the new heaven and new earth will not mean inactivity. He says, such boredom is reserved for hell. But renewed activity. Where tedium, severity, pain, sorrow will all be removed. There will be work to do. His work is refreshing. There's something wonderful about it when it's not tainted by the fall, by sin. Heaven is not going to be a place where we just twiddle our thumbs. The description that's being given here, these are just little glimpses of it, but being put in charge of cities? There's going to be that sort of thing going on? Who knows all the things that the Lord will have in store for His children. Life here and now is just a proving grounds for the life to come. Our fitness for service in eternity is being seen by our stewardship now. What a beautiful promise that is. That means the person who works his whole life as a janitor, but does a great job, and does that job unto the Lord, and serves others in that capacity, the Lord sees that, and will reward that faithfulness. There is no task too small for God to reward. I'll tell you this, it would be much better to have a small task that you do well than a massive task that you completely flop on. God wants us to be faithful with what He has given to us. We so need to have our eyes open to see that what we have here is nothing compared to the riches to be distributed to God's children in the new heaven and the new earth. In heaven... Now, this is a little glimpse of it. In heaven, the streets are paved with gold. So you take this precious thing today, heaven, that just paves the streets. Right? That's just street paving. That's like asphalt in heaven. Gold is asphalt for heaven. Right? The things that we think are the most important, the most beautiful here, are commonplace there. God has marvelous things in store for His children. Not only are both of them commended, but then both of them are invited He says, enter into your master's joy. Enter into your master's joy. Now, there could be a link to the previous parable here. Because remember, with the parable of the virgins, those who were ready entered into the feast. And those who didn't, did not, were not granted access. You see, ultimately, our joy is found in our master himself. That's where our joy is found. It's found in God. It starts to unravel also that third wicked slave's words about this master. That he's not quite the way that he's depicted him. Let's move to that last slave. The master's response to the last slave. First of all, we see his words of this man's character and nature. His, his productivity and character. He calls him evil 
and lazy. He says, you're a slothful slave. He has a completely different perspective on this slave than the slave has of himself. The slave is blinded to his own situation because he's self-justifying his actions and he's angry with the master. It's the master's fault, not my own. Man, is that just like today? Those who are lost are angry with God. It's God's fault. And they're self-justifying. I'm okay for these reasons. Or I should be excused for these reasons. Or I can blame somebody else for what's going on. The slave claimed that fear drove him. The master says the slave is evil and lazy. The master explains that at least partially at play was the servant's disinclination to work for the master due to his own laziness. You're pushing this off on me, but the truth be told, you're lazy and you're evil and wicked. And then the master even adopts the slave's excuse for argument's sake. And he says, you claim to know who I am. You say you know who I am. And he takes issue with this slave's knowledge. He says, you tell me, I reap where I don't sow. I gather where I don't scatter. So you knew that I was that sort of enterprising entrepreneur. How dare you then hide my talent? If you know I'm the kind of person who profits from other people's work, just that where I'm not even working, I'm seeing profits. How dare you then just hide the talent? You're using this excuse to not work? If you knew that's who I am, if you knew that's the kind of man I am, that I'm a hard, austere, merciless man, you should have worked all the more hard to make sure you had something to show for the investment that I've made in you. If that's the kind of guy I am, you should be even more diligent in what you're doing. If not from love, you should have at least earned something out of fear. If you really do fear me like that, you'd be working hard. I didn't give that talent to you to waste. I'm not only concerned that you not have something done something bad with it, but that you do something good with it to make profitable use with it. Otherwise, instead, all you did is bury it. He says, if you have learned from watching me that I'm a man who profits from the work of others, then why not even apply that principle to your situation? Why not at least give it over to the bank? Let them work for you. If you're a lazy man, you just want to sit around, why don't you at least give it to the bank? Let somebody else do the work for you. Profit from If you learn that from me, if that's the kind of guy I am, why didn't you just drop it off at the bank? With minimal effort, you could have at least invested it, and you would have a return to me with interest. As a general rule of thumb, maybe you've heard of this before, the rule of compounding interest, the rule of 72. If you take 72 and divide it by the rate of interest, that's the number of years it'll take to double the initial investment. So, for example, if you invest one in something that's 1% interest, it'll take you 72 years to double the original compounded interest uh, thing. If you were to make an investment of 9%, then in eight years, you'd double the original investment. Eight years at 9% interest, you'd double what you originally had if you compounded the interest. So you see the master's point here, right? Even if you had made an investment that netted, let's say, like 6% interest, in 12 years, you would have had what the other slaves did. You would have had double You would have doubled your investment in 12 years had you just given it to a banker. And if you couldn't get that good of a rate, at least you'd have something to show when I returned. Obviously, had the master merely wanted to put it in a bank, he could have done it himself, right? The point isn't that that's what you should have done. But his point is this, is if that's really your rationale, these are the things that should have happened. He's exposing the duplicity here. 
The slave does not have his master's interest at heart. He does not love his master. He hates his master. And he's just burying it off in the ground, wait for the guy to come back, whenever he comes unbury it and give it to him. I mean, that, that's the kind of attitude here. Versus the other two are, look, master, look what we've gotten. Here it is. Completely different hearts are here being played out in activity. You see, our actions say so much about our heart. Our behavior exposes what's really in our heart. A person who says that he loves God and loves being with Christians who never goes to church is a liar. Sorry. (laughs) How do you not spend time with other Christians? If you say you love them, how can you avoid them? How can you neglect them? So here's the judgment. He says, take away the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. Don't miss this. Note, give it to the one with ten. Who has ten? The first slave, right? Who said, here's five more that I've gained. It seems what the master has done, at least at the moment, is all ten are still in that slave's possession. He hasn't just taken them back. He says, give that one talent to the guy who has ten now. Give it to him. Even that shows that there's something not quite right in this third slave's opinions of his master. And it proves that the master is not saying, yeah, I'm that kind of hard, austere man, merciless man. He's a loving master. But he plays with that argument to show just how wrong it is. He didn't take away the talents. Instead, he just invited them, his his servants, into his joy. The one having everything will be given more, while the one who even has something will be taken away from even what he has. Those who already enjoy the manifold blessings of God are going to see such an outpouring. Those who are in Christ, we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen anything yet. But should you refuse the opportunity given to you, you will forfeit even the little that you think you have. That's what will be for those who are lost. Even what they claim to be theirs will be stripped away from them. They'll have nothing when it's all done. Then the sentence is leveled. And the tragic irony is the very thing that this servant wished to avoid, the wrath of his master, is what he gets. He says, I was fearful that that something would come to me. As was said by one commentator, as he dug that hole for the talent, he was really digging a hole for himself. For that's where this man would go. The master says, throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, a description that is given to hell. I think it's this kind of moment that reminds us that Jesus is teaching more than just you know, principles of economics. Certainly, you can learn some of those ancillary principles here as we've talked about them some along the way. But don't lose sight of the fact, what is Jesus really after here? He's mostly concerned that people make use of what God has given them an opportunity to respond to the gospel. I even think, I wonder if some of this is particularly directed towards the Jews who knew so much about the coming Messiah, but had hidden it in the ground and buried it and weren't making use of that, weren't understanding that Jesus was indeed the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. You see that slave, this third slave who was just angry and spiteful and upset and filled with excuses. It's funny because his depiction is like all those who aren't in Christ. I think in particular it's a great description of Luther. Remember Luther before his conversion? He was fearful of God. He was scared to death of God. He, 
couldn't do anything to, you know, calm his own conscience. He knew he was a sinner and he knew he wasn't as righteous God. He just he completely undone and angry and mad until the Lord converts him as he's reading Romans 1, 16 and 17. Before he knew fear without joy, then he knew joy without fear. That's the conversion that happens when someone enters into God's family through Jesus. The excuses fall away. The person admits their need and they're warmly invited into God's family. You see, ultimately our stewardship says so very much about what we think about God. The way we live indicates what we really believe. Jesus points to the stewardship of servants and their final appraisal as a foil for us to consider our own lives. Our words can speak of grand things. The question is, do our lives line up with what we say? When we say that we trust and love God, is it evident in our stewardship of the resources that He gave us? Do we see everything that we have and everything that we are as on loan from our God and King? Do we seek to make our an investment of the goods entrusted to us in order that we might bring a return unto our Lord when He comes back? Are we excited about His return? Are we excited to say, See, Jesus, look what happened. You gave me all these things. You employed me in Your service. You saved me by Your grace and for Your glory. And You've given me this opportunity to make investments in others. And this is what's happened. See, Lord, see what's happened. Do we live as servants? Do we handle our things as really the things of another? Are we actively seeking ways to use resources to advance our master's agenda? Do we find our deepest joy in pleasing Him? Do we find our deepest longing in enjoying His joy of being invited into the joy of our Master? I mean, should He return today? Would we have profit to give to Him from the investment that He's made in us? It's certainly long past time for us to wake up. Now is no time for sloth. The Lord's return is near and no one is guaranteed another moment. How do we want to be found? How do you want to be found? Do you want to be found disregarding the call of the gospel? Do you want to be found making excuses? Do you want to be found angry with the God who created you? Or do you want to be found in Christ, reconciled to God? Being saved not by something you've done, but trusting in what Jesus has done on your behalf. You see, there is work to be completed. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. As a Christian, you get to work for the best boss imaginable. The best boss you could ever imagine. One whose judgment is perfect. One who loves you deeper than can be expressed. One who delight to give good gifts to his children. One who rewards hard work. One who sees work done in secret that no one else sees. One who delights to do good to his children. And he employs his workmen in the very most honorable profession. Because as a Christian, you have the privilege of sharing the best news that's ever been given. That man can be forgiven of his sins and granted eternal life. Once saved, a man can now employ all the resources God has given us to the best use. We have the opportunity and privilege of working with the new heavens and new earth in mind. For that's where we're headed. 
You see, we're storing up treasures in heaven. And at the end of it all, we'll be granted the joy of our Master. We'll be granted the ability to enter into the joy of our Master forevermore. You see, there is work in the waiting, but the work in the waiting is all worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for the joy of knowing You, of the delight of being in relationship with You through Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that You have redeemed work. You've made work have eternal significance when it is done in Your way. I pray, Lord, that You would free us from the fleeting things of this earth and cause us to look to eternity. Remind us that all that we have is Yours, that we're just stewards of resources You've granted. And may we be found servants who have been good and faithful. May we hear You saying, bravo. May we hear You saying, well done. Rather than hear You say, wicked and lazy slave. Lord, we know that it is only by Your grace that this is accomplished. So we ask even in these moments that You would save people in this room by Your grace and empower those whom You have saved for service unto You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.